Well, good morning, Carmel family. It is such a joy and an improbable joy if you've been around for Philippians uh, with us. It's my joy to get to be here with you this morning. My name is Jason Salyer, and I serve on the pastoral team here at Carmel. And while Pastor Alex is away uh, speaking in another location today, uh, you pray for him. Uh, I'm delighted to get to be able to open God's word to you and share with you this message of union with Christ. So for those of us in the room or those joining us online, it is such a joy to be able to gather together as God's people as we open his word together. So I want to invite you to open up God's word to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So we're going to take a brief pause from the book of Philippians, and we're going to focus in on this concept of union with Christ which is important because it is a foundational doctrine in our lives. Maybe the doctrine, maybe the truth and reality that so many other realities in Scripture are connected to. Kind of like the center spoke or, or hub of a wheel that all the spokes are attached to. Every biblical truth and reality in your life is connected to this idea in Scripture of union with Christ. So, With that being said, let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 down through verse 14. And if you're able to, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. As you stand and we will read together what is in the Greek, one long sentence, but a lot of beautiful truths here in our Bibles. Beginning verse 3, the Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This reminds me of a time early in my ministry. Uh, I was in seminary and I was serving in a church while in the Louisville, Kentucky area. And I started out of this church that had you know, about 150, 200 members in it on a Sunday morning. And like I would do my first couple of Sundays here at Carmel, there was a lot of time to meet new families and get to know people. And so there's all these times where you gather kind of in a line and receiving line and get to meet a lot of new people and hear their stories and make connections and all of those things. And I'll never forget that first Sunday in this church where I spoke to a gentleman who said, hey, we're so glad you're here. Have you met Joe yet? And I said, no, actually, I'm, everyone's new to me. I've not, not met Joe. 
uh, who's Joe? He said, oh, you'll, you'll love Joe. Oh, we just, we can't wait for you to meet Joe. You'll love Joe. And I said, okay, that sounds fantastic. A few people later, someone else said, hey, you, you probably know Joe. I'm Joe's neighbor. And so if you know Joe, I just live out about there where Joe lives. And I said, okay, I, st- I have not met Joe, but that sounds great. And then a few people later, someone introduced some, hi, Mr. So-and-so, I serve on the deacon board here. You've met our chairman of deacons, Joe, I'm sure, already. And I said, actually, I sure haven't met this Joe, uh, but I really like to. The entire day came and went. The next Sunday came and went, and I still had not met Joe. And I was beginning to wonder if there was a Joe. If I was starting to lose my mind, I was thinking, my dad's name is Joe. Maybe I'm Joe. I don't even know anymore. I, I don't G.I. Joe. I'm, I'm so confused. Finally... At the end of that second week, I saw a man in the back, and it's just one of those moments where just in the middle of the message, I'm like, that's Joe. I just know that's Joe. And sure enough, I went up to him afterwards, and I said, hi, it's good to meet you. I'm Jason. He said, hi, I'm Joe. Oh, thank you. Okay. So good to meet you. Okay. I've heard a lot about you. Why didn't you introduce yourself before? And he said, ah, it's not a big deal. I figured we'd get around to it eventually. I'm not really that big of a deal. I said, well, apparently you are uh, because everyone here knows you. And I think there's a lot of ways where we get into this idea of union with Christ that kind of feels the same way where we, you know, I knew all the people that knew Joe without knowing Joe. And in this case, I think there's a lot of key truths in scripture about Christ, about our life in him, about salvation, about sanctification, about glorification. You heard about all of those just last week. But do we see how they're all connected to Jesus? And so as we look in Ephesians chapter one, it's really my hope and prayer that we would see ourselves in the terms of these two simple words found in our Bibles, in Christ. So this phrase is used over 160 times in those New Testament letters. In my Bible, 100 or less pages, and this is in there over 160 times. And what I want to do today is to help you understand and unpack a little bit of this beautiful, eternal, glorious reality of union with Christ. But I understand with our time this morning, it is like going into the ocean and getting a cup of water out and taking someone that's never seen the ocean and saying, hey, you should really check out the ocean. It's like this. That's all we're going to have time for today. We're just going to get a little scoop and maybe whet your appetite to dig further into this idea of what it means to be in Christ. Because if you were to go ask a first century follower of Jesus, they would most likely not refer to themselves as a Christian, first and foremost. In fact, that term was only found three times in our New Testament. And in really every case, it's given almost as a term of derision or look at these little Christs that are running around and everything. So the first century followers of Jesus would probably refer to themselves either as disciples or most likely they would say, I am in Christ. What does it mean though to be in Christ? So let's take a quick snapshot at the passage that we just read. Now don't let your eyes go blurry. There's a big passage But we just read this, and so the goal is to not read back through and try to find those here. I'm going to do the work for you. Look right here. All of this in this one section, in Christ, through Christ, in Him. And then when you add in those areas of His person, His worth, His glory, His work in our lives, 
You see, as this passage is framed, as so many other New Testament passages are framed, about who we are, not just as a people of God, but who we are in Christ. So I'm going to give us a 30,000-foot view of four key areas of what it means to be found in Christ. And then we're going to hop out of the plane and get down in the weeds and look what that means practically for our lives, beginning with this first concept in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 2 comes at it with this way, beginning with the fact that we are in Christ positionally. So that before creation, you were thought of in God's mind as in Christ. That was always the plan. Before the incarnation, before the cross, none of that, by the way, was plan B. The plan from the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1, verse 5, is that it shows us in him according to the pleasure of his will. Or as Colossians would say, you were made by Jesus and for Jesus. All things are held together by him, through him, and for him. So that the most fundamental truth about your life, of your existence, of why you are here living and breathing today is that you were made to bring glory to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis, God is seeking after a fallen humanity and he does not ask them, Adam, Eve, when they sinned, he does not say, what have you done? He says, where are you? And this is significant because he is not, as we would imagine, trying to find them. No, God knows all things. He sees and understands all things all the way down to the very intent of our heart. No, when God asks a question, it's to teach a lesson. And so when he is saying, Adam, where are you? He's speaking of what has happened to him positionally. What has it taken place in his life and in our life since the fall. If you want to see how all the pieces fit after that, you're seeing God answer that question, where are you himself? If you want to see how that fits into the the purity laws of Leviticus or all the tabernacle instructions and ordinances, every role of prophet and priest and king, the exile in Babylon, every story, every testimony, every witness since that moment in the Garden of Eden is pointing us back to that singular reality that every scripture either predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the work of Christ. It is preparing our hearts to understand the good news of the gospel, and then the good news of the gospel is good because God is restoring us to himself. So that the greatest gift that we have is not just the benefits of the gospel, namely grace, freedom, salvation, all of those things, joy, peace, all those things we like to talk about in the Christian life that are ours in Christ, but it is the gift of Christ himself that is central. It is the relationship with Christ himself that reigns supreme, so much so that he is telling us he is, he's done all of these things to bring us back to himself so that when many of us came to know and follow Jesus in the room, when you remember, if you would hear maybe a gospel presentation about if you want to go to heaven one day, you need to believe and trust in Jesus because Jesus is the way to heaven. And that is absolutely 100% biblical truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So not only is it that he's the way to heaven and as the God who will one day remake the heavens and the earth, he is the prize at the end of the race. So that we don't just 
come to Jesus to get what we really want, which is heaven, which is eternal life. No, you want heaven because that's where Jesus is. You want a new heavens and a new earth and a redeemed body and an eternal life because that is what you were made for to walk in fellowship with him. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is the focus of all creation. And that is why Ephesians says that he is now bringing us back positionally in that relationship with him through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you look in verses 13 and 14, he's speaking to that reality of how in him, once you've heard this word of truth, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is this guarantee of what is to come. You are in Christ and Christ is in you and you will never hear another truth in all of your life more amazing than that. You are in Christ. He is in you. But not only that, he is saving us. He is uniting us redemptively. Notice what he says again, looking at verse six. He says that he's saved us, redeemed us. How and for what purpose? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's a word play here that you see throughout many of the New Testament letters where the noun and the verb are kind of interchangeable here, where it's saying, you are being loved in the beloved. You are being graced in the one who is grace. He is the fountainhead. He's the source of those things. So that you're receiving love, you're receiving grace in and through Christ. And how is it that you get there? If we're talking a lot about what it means to be in Christ, it's important for those of us in the room, those of us watching online to understand what it means to be in Christ or how is it that we get into Christ? And that's exactly what John three sixteen is telling us. For God so loved the world, what? That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So he gave us his one and only son so that we would believe in him or it can be translated believe into him. It is a trusting, a falling of faith onto the person and work of Jesus so that when we receive the gift of God's son in our lives and the relationship, we are doing so by believing in him. We share in his life and his victory. It is almost baseball season and I'm getting excited because uh, I'm in the minority that just loves baseball and all things baseball. And, but if you kind of go here with me in your, your sport, that if I'm, if I'm checking out or following that story of that bench player that is just riding the bench, no one even knows his name, he's not wearing the right number, doesn't, has never had an at-bat, will never play in a game in his entire life. Imagine that player just sitting there day in and day out, game in and game out. No one even knows he's there. But he watches as his team's star player hits a home run to win the World Series. There's a parade, there's celebration, everyone's going crazy. He is every bit as much the World Series champion as that player that hits 60 home runs. He is every bit as much a sharer in the victory as that person who won the championship for that team. Now, the same thing is true in Christ. We are receiving victory in and through Jesus. And this is not only an example in sports today, but this is an example in scripture. Think about when David is fighting Goliath. So often we read that story and we're quick to talk about the courage of David and this and that, and that's all part of the story. But the point of the story is, alluded to leading into it when David and Goliath were having a little pregame smack talk on the field. And there's, 
there's lines drawn and there's, there's words being shared against each other and kind of this situation comes to be where they say, now if our champion beats your champion, then you're going to have to be our servants. So that when David is out there facing the giant, he is doing so on behalf of his people that represent us who are cowering in the sidelines waiting to see how this whole thing is going to play out. And when David defeats Goliath, those who are in David share in his victory. So where are you today? Are you positionally in Christ? That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Notice what Paul is doing here. He actually takes a phrase and puts together two words in the original language that aren't used together in any other place in ancient literature. He, he so wants to communicate the fact that you have died with Jesus. Jesus died, you died. Same event. Jesus rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. Same event. That he ties them together by making up a new word. You have been raised with Christ. In this new relationship changes absolutely everything about your life here and now. That's why he even speaks to this beautiful reality in Galatians 2.20. I love how this captures all of that in one singular verse. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life now I live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ in you, he says in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory. Several years ago, I was going to this establishment that my uh, kids loved and I kind of tolerated called Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) And when my kids were growing up, they know the trick now. They feel betrayed and they've forgiven us. But we used to always refer to it as Charlie Cheddar. Uh, because we didn't want them to know when they would hear Chuck E. Cheese, their ears would just go up and they'd go run everywhere. So we would say, uh, Charlie Cheddar. Have you, have we, do you think we're going to go to that party over at Charlie Cheddar's? Well, I met Charlie Cheddar one day because Charlie Cheddar actually went to our church. Uh, and this young man who put on the Chuck E. Cheese head and outfit to go around and give out candy and tickets and everything, he was a part of the, the local church I was part of. But the funny thing is, like, I would never in a million years consider him to work in children's ministry. Never in a million years would I want him like serving in preschool ministry or teaching in elementary school and everything because he just really didn't seem to handle being around kids very much. It just stressed him out and he would always just kind of be in the corner and away from where all the kids in the action room was. So I thought, okay, well, there's no way he's doing that. So I show up and sure enough, he's in the, the Charlie Cheddar outfit, as I call it. And I, I, I watch him come out there and he is just making it rain tickets and he's throwing out candy to kids and giving kids hugs and high-fiving everyone and out there just absolutely to the, the wonder and affection of all the children in the room. And so much so that I leaned up, I said, hey, is that really you? He's like, get away, I'm working. Yes, it's me, of course it's me. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, afterwards I talked to him, I said, how is that you? I don't understand because you never like being around kids. He said, 
Jason, man, something happens when I put that mouse head on. <laughs> something, something comes over me and I just, I love every moment of it. And I said, okay, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Almost in a way, in kind of a silly way of understanding that we have this now new relationship with God and we are clothed in Christ and Christ is in us. But listen, it's not, it's not a, a fake out. It's not something that would deceive anyone. It's not us standing before God and tricking him by being hidden in Christ. No, we are hidden in him because we are made one with him. He is in us and we are in him. And because of that, we are one with him. That is why it's important that we understand too that union with Christ is deeply relational. So that God is answering the question, not just where are you, but who are you? My identity is in Christ. My identity is in him and I've received through him the love and acceptance and favor of the Father. But if I speak of my relationship with Jesus, I've got to clarify what it is I'm talking about. I have a relationship with my wife. I have a relationship with my kids. I have a relationship with my dog. But those are different relationships. And so it's important to clarify what we mean when we say I have a relationship with Jesus. The good news is you don't have to make that up on your own. The Bible is filled with examples of what that relationship looks like. You were like living stones in what God is building. Jesus Christ himself being the foundation, the chief cornerstone. You are like vines and branches coming together and grafted into Christ. And you are abiding in the vine as one who abides in Jesus. You are Parts of a body coming together. Jesus himself being the head formed together. They are one. All of these things continue all throughout the scripture to teach us the same reality from beautiful, distinct points of view. So much so that if you were to read in the book of Acts at the conversion of Saul, when Jesus is speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus, notice what he says. He does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting this ragtag group of people that are over here hiding in the shadows that associate themselves with me? No, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is radically identifying with his people as one in a relationship. And we see that relationship and that metaphor spilled over in the book of Ephesians toward the end of the book, chapter five, in the picture of marriage. Marriage is a beautiful picture of a relational and a positional change. Here's what that looks like. When I first got married, I was a college student. I had student debt. I had a car that did not run very well. It went to A and B and sometimes C, but that's about it. But I, I married uh, my wife, Bethany, who was not in debt, who was out of school, who was working full-time, who actually has saved up a little bit of money and had a car that worked and had lower miles and ran a lot better than mine. Guess what happened when we said I do and the two became one? She took on my debt and I received what she also had. And when the two became one in that union of marriage, it was a picture of what was happening, not just positionally, but relationally. So much so that we don't only need to focus on the the forgiveness piece that is important to know in our salvation in Christ. But if you read Ephesians 1, you're looking at so much more. You're looking at what we have received through Jesus. 
the new relationship, the blessing, the favor from God, the inheritance in Christ that we've received. It would be like if you were to show up on your wedding day with a million dollars in student debt. One million dollars. And you're thinking, okay, this is gonna take quite some time to try to pay down. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But imagine the person you're marrying and you're joining life and account to is a 100 trillionaire. All of a sudden, you're not really worried about that student debt. It's not even a thought in your mind. And it's not just the fact that their debt has been canceled, but now you're receiving this gift and this inheritance and this presence and favor and peace and joy and love of God in your life that comes in and through the name of Jesus. Romans puts it this way. We were buried again. We had this in our baptism earlier. Notice what it says about being in Christ, buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You just saw this in the baptistry earlier. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see the beauty of the gospel in union with Christ and the fact that you have, it's not like you kind of died. It's not like you should have just died or that it's like you've died. No, you really died with Jesus that day. The penalty for your sins was paid for. You've really been raised with Christ. And all that you need to walk out that new reality is yours now. So much so that Peter says it this way in 2 Peter. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. It's this picture in my mind of my, my son Isaac uh, in the coat that I was wearing earlier. I had a picture to share with you guys. But it's just this idea that, uh, I mean, if, if he puts on my coat, it's going to go down about right here on him. The sleeves are going to go down past this. But one day he's going to grow up into that. Not because he's a different person, not because the clothes shrink, but he's growing up into and becoming more of who he already is and has been made to be. And that is exactly what the picture of what it means for those of us who are in Christ. We are growing up into him who is the head and growing up in maturity, but it is the experience of those things day by day that we get to experience the relationship with him, but that doesn't change our position in him. We've been united with him for all eternity in Christ. Let's see what this looks like just over on the other side of your page in Ephesians chapter two. Again, with all we've said in mind, just take a moment and let's read in Ephesians two verses one through 10 and look at how this new life is spelled out in Christ. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the works and the, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's your position, that's your relationship, that's your reality. Verse four, but God, who being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created, here it is, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the beautiful reality spelled out once again in this beautiful letter? The image of God is being restored in us, but not only that, but the image of Christ is coming through your life and my life. And as we become more like him, we become truly human the way that we were designed to be. You were children of wrath. Now you are sons and daughters of God in Christ. So that the more like Jesus you become, the more sane you become, the more like the version of you that you were always meant to be comes to pass. So much so that he finishes this passage in verse 10 with this connection to what we've been talking about just last week in the book of Philippians, about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in and through you. How? In Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Those things are coming to pass in your life. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He prepared in advance for us to do. That word workmanship is a root word, poema, which we get our word for poem or poetry from. It's this picture of this this intentional, beautiful, guiding work of God in our lives that is so direct, so relational, so affectionate and deep and meaningful that he's writing your story and he's going to continue to write that story as you trust and believe in him. So that as you're surrendering your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you cease to exist. Sometimes we hear lingo in the Christian life where it's, you know, those things are, I just completely decreased to where there's nothing left of me. It's just all Jesus. That was not the goal. The goal is a unique expression of a unity in Christ. We've all been saved by grace through faith, but we're called as one body, many members, different gifts, different wirings, different expressions of his grace, his glory in and through your life. So you become the version of you that you were always meant to be when you're freed and redeemed in Christ. And God as our infinite creator in his infinite wisdom is not desiring uniformity, but unity in Christ which leads us to this final beautiful reality that union with Christ is eternal. Jesus writes an eternal story. We could spend a lot of time this morning looking at a lot of places in scripture that speak to eternity. But instead, I want you to understand the reason that we are given those little sneak peeks behind the curtain of what's going to be happening in eternity is so that we would grow in faithfulness and love and obedience to Jesus now so that union with Christ and the eternal plan of God puts into perspective every single moment of your life right here, right now. Maybe your story is not being played out and lived out the way that you would want right now. Maybe there's a place of deep struggle or groaning or even hurt. You need to understand that in light of eternity, 
there's a promise that God is going to complete that work he began in you. He promises that. And just as you're called now, we didn't even get to scratch the surface of all the hundreds of other passages about this. But if you were to go and look, we've talked a lot recently, even in Philippians, about we're going to suffer. There's going to be suffering. Jesus did not die on the cross so that you would not have to suffer. Jesus died on the cross so that you would not suffer for your sins, but so that you would follow him in a path that does include suffering. He turns and says to you, take up your cross and follow me. Walk in this path with me. If you suffer with me, you're also going to be glorified with me, Jesus says. So as we follow him through this life, through the deep, dark, shadowy valleys, understand that he is still writing your story and he has one goal, one glorious end in mind so that you can remind yourselves of truths like this from Romans 8. Many of us have heard or remember this verse of we know all things, what, They're going to work together for good. For who? Those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. But you got to keep reading because he tells us the ultimate good thing in the very next verse. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into what? The image of his son. The plan from all eternity past is that you would be made like Jesus, Christ in you, and you in Christ. That beautiful unity that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Hear me and hear me well today. God knows exactly what it's going to take to make you like Jesus. He is committed to that in your life and he will bring it to pass all into eternity. There is so much more. There is so much more we could get into with this. But I just hope and pray that you would never casually read over those words in Christ again, that you would pause and reflect and with deep faith and deep wonder. If you struggle with identity or direction or your future, look to Jesus, be found in Christ and understand this, that because you are in Christ, you are given the assurance of your identity in him. And because Christ is in you, you are given the power to live it out from now through eternity. It's as he says in Ephesians 2, 7. This beautiful, did you catch this little statement he makes in Ephesians 2, 7? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when you stand before him one day, I want you to picture in your mind's eye as we go into a place of prayer together, In your mind's eye, imagine what his face will be that day when you see him. Is he scowling? Is he frowning? Is he questioning you? Wondering, how did you get here? (laughs) What is the face of, of your Savior on that day? What do you see when you see Christ? Because if you are in Christ today, Know what he has gone through to rescue and redeem and secure and bless and pour out his love and grace and mercy in your life. You want a tiny little sneak peek on it? Wait till a wedding day. Next time you see a wedding, don't just watch the bride come down the aisle. Look back at the groom. Do y'all do that? I always do that. I always love to do that. It's just a tiny picture of the face of our Lord. Longing with that anticipation 
as he is made one with his bride, his body, vine with branches, stone upon stone, life into life. We are united with Christ. And when we've been there a billion years, I hope one day I get to catch you and passing and introduce you to Joe. Because after all, Joe and you and I are going to be there by his grace and for his glory. And we are together in Christ. Let's pray. Just want to give us a moment of stillness before the Lord. So wherever this finds you, I would simply ask that you fix your heart's gaze upon him and all that he has done on your behalf. And you respond in faith to him, however he's leading you. Look to Jesus, be found in Christ. continue to pray. If you're watching online or here in the room and you've never trusted in to Jesus, you can pray right now, right where you are, in faith and call upon his name. Scripture says he will hear you, he will receive you. So you can pray from a posture of faith Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross in my place for my sins. I believe that you rose again on the third day. So right here and now, I am putting my trust, my hope in you as Lord and Savior. Would you forgive me of my sins and give me new life in you as I follow you all my days in Christ. For others, may you be taking a step of faith. You pray the Lord would continue to open your eyes to all of these wonderful, glorious, eternal realities that we would walk by faith in them. As we prepare our hearts even now to give and receive our offering, Lord, we pray specifically that you would use these gifts to build your kingdom here in the Charlotte area, but also to the very ends of the earth. God, thank you. As we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we can pray and give and go and serve and love and do all of these things out of an expression of your life in and through our life. So Lord, as we give now, I pray that you would take and use these gifts in our lives for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name.